Um, Thanks, Adam. Hello. Is that good? Cool. Um, hello, welcome to RUF. My name is John Bourgeois. If I haven't met you yet, uh, I am the campus minister here at Wake Forest. And as Ben, who was pretending to be Preston, if you didn't get that joke, they looked similar and you got, you got the joke. Um, and Forrest, as they said, um, we're really glad that you're here. We hope this is a safe place uh, for you to bring your questions and um, to investigate the claims of Christianity. And if you are a Christian, we hope this is a place that um, you can grow in your knowledge of God and in your walk with Jesus. Um, I want to introduce a couple of people to you that I introduced the second week. Um, my wife, Mary Clark. I didn't tell you I was going to do this. Can you stand up? Um, this is my wife, Mary Clark. And then Lauren Harris. Where are you, Lauren? Lauren, if you stand up, um, Lauren and, and I both work for RUF, and we would love to meet with you um, at any time um, to get to know you, to care for you. And Mary Clark is my wife, and she would love to meet with you as well if you're a girl. So um, <laughs> y'all can sit down. Thanks. Um, find them. Introduce yourselves to them if you haven't met them. Um, so I want to start tonight by telling you a story. So I knew this guy. Um, He went to a top-tier school. It wasn't number 27, but no one's counting, right? Um, He did okay in college. Uh, um, And then his junior year, his brain turned on. That's how he puts it. Um, You know, like athletes, when they talk about how stuff slows down and they can see the field and perform better, um, he described that as what happened to him academically. And um, he started... Uh, getting A's rather than B's and C's. And then he went on to grad school and he started acing stuff. Um, and he started telling myself, t- t- excuse me, started telling himself, um, if I get A's, then my life will be complete. Um, if I get A's, then I'll be free from the limitations and brokenness of my life. Um, and then he went on to think, um, I already gave it away, didn't I? This is me. Um, then he went on to think, if I get advanced degrees, then then my life will be complete. So um, if I go for a PhD, then, um, then I'll be freed from the limitations and brokenness of my life. Um, and this captured me. And I started thinking about everything in terms of its youthfulness towards this if-then if, goal, right? If I do this, then um, I will be freed from my limitations and my brokenness that I experienced in my life. So I, uh, everything was about this if-then goal. Even when professors told me in seminary, John, you probably shouldn't do a PhD. Um, so I'm not doing a PhD. But even when they told me that, I still, like, everything was employed to this end of this if-then goal. Do you all do this? Of course you do, right? Um, the what-if or the if-then statements um, are full. We, we do them with lots of things. Well, what are the ones in your lives? What are the if-then statements that you rely on in your own life? An example of this is the, if I'm happy, then I'll be free from the limitations and the brokenness of my life, right? That, that if then unhappiness is one that our culture is obsessed over, right? We've got movies about it, the pursuit of happiness where Will Smith is in homeless in San Francisco, which would be brutal because San Francisco is the most expensive place to live in our country. Um, and then it, it's, the happiness is, is framed within financial success, right? And the movie ends with him having happiness by having lots of money. Um, uh, there's songs about this, right? The, the Farrell or Pharrell song. I can't say his name. What is it? Pharrell? That's right. Um, his song, Happy, which was played way too much by our parents, right? Um, and it got drowned out in our ears. Some of us have bought into this, right? Some of us have bought into um, do everything you can to be happy, 
Um, and some of us have given up on this if-then of happiness and have re- replaced it with the if-then of ambivalence, right? If I'm ambivalent towards happiness or sadness, then I'll be free from the limitations and brokenness of my life. Right? If you look at the newest J. Crew lookbook, every model has this face, <laughs> right? RBF, y'all know this, resting B face, like this, this thing that's happening where women are looking at pictures of themselves and they're saying, gosh, I've got this RBF everywhere I go. I can't help it. My one and a half year old daughter, all of her photos, she's like this, like angry in her, right? So, but ambivalence doesn't work either, right? This doesn't solve the problem. Um, being ambivalent about stuff never solved anyone's problems. Well, tonight, as we look at Colossians, we're going to be talking about idolatry. Idolatry is a strange word. Um, It's a word that might be unfamiliar for you. But idolatry is when we look at something other than God to deal with our experience of brokenness. Idols are things other than God that we worship because they promise freedom from the limitations and brokenness of my life, but they never deliver on what they promise. When I say that they're things that we worship, I mean they're things that we give worth to or we put value in or we lean on. John Calvin, who was um, a pastor, said this. He said, um, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. We're constantly cre- creating things for ourselves to worship. Right? We're constantly making these if-then statements to try to be free from our limitations and brokenness. And these if-then statements never deliver on their promise and they enslave us. And Paul's going to say to us, see to it that no one takes you captive through these empty lies, um, these if-then statements. So if you'll uh, turn with me, if you've got a Bible with you, um, we're reading Colossians 2, 8 through 15. Um, If you've got the, what color is it today? Orange sheet. um, It's printed there as well. And I'm going to read um, from verse 6 through verse 15. Colossians 2, verse 6 through verse 15. This is God's word for us tonight. Um, It's completely true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you... Who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, um, we thank you for your word to us, and we ask now that you would help us. Um, Would you send your spirit amongst us that we would 
um, hear from you, that you would uh, search us and know us, um, or bring to the surface uh, the ways in which we are captive to idols, and would you free us? Jesus, would you speak to us to do this work? Um, Lord, help me as I speak that uh, through my feeble and faltering words, um, you would make yourself known in your beauty and glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, my talk tonight has three points. Uh, The first is the command that Paul gives us. Second is the reason for the command. And the third is the power to obey the command. Um, Before I get there, um, just to give us where we are in in Colossians, kind of give us a... um, to place us in the book. So we've been going through Colossians together this fall, and what we've seen in Colossians that Paul is writing to this church in Colossae, and he's telling them um, who they are and who Jesus is. Right? He tells them who Jesus is. He tells them about the gospel that goes forth and is bearing fruit, and that Jesus is the one um, for whom all things were made, by whom all things were made, and in whom all things hold together. Um, and then last week, we looked at this, this verse of Colossians 2, 6 through 7, um, where Paul says, Just as you received Jesus, the same way that you received him, through faith, um, by falling apart in him, just as you've received Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him. The, the Christian life is not us doing things for God, but us participating with God in our own lives, walking with him, re- walking with him as we received him. And tonight, Paul um, speaks to us in... And starting in verse 8, saying, See to it that no one takes you captive. And this language is in line with the traditional biblical rhetoric against idolatry. So what does that mean? Um, We see in the Old Testament when the prophets were speaking to God's people about idolatry, they did it in a particular way. In Hosea 5, um, it says that idolatry makes repentance in the knowledge of God impossible. And then here in Colossians 2.8, Paul describes a captivating philosophy that shuts the doors on the possibility of trusting God with our whole lives. And then in Psalm 115, uh, the psalmist describes idolatry as worthless. And here in verse 8, Paul describes the philosophy as empty deceit. Also in Psalm 115, um, the prophets remind us, and they do this elsewhere, they love to remind us that idols are made with human hands, that they're actually stuff made by us. And Paul to the Colossians says that this is based on human tradition. Well, what's going on here? Well, Paul, in a long line of prophets and apostles, is calling people to repentance for submitting to idols and calling them to faith in the one true God. And in verse 8, Paul is showing us how idols operate in our lives, how it is that they take us captive. In chapter 1, when Paul gave this great hymn of who Christ was and saying that in Christ all things were made, and they're made for him and they're made by him, he mentions that thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, both visible and invisible, were created by Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. And these invisible rulers and authorities are what many cultures refer to as gods or deities. I mean, think of Roman gods or Greek gods. Um, these are nat- national or cultural deities And Paul is saying that in God's good creation, these were created to serve Jesus. Um, And there's this entire spiritual world that we know next to nothing about as as humans. But what Paul is saying is that all of it exists to serve Jesus. And if Colossians 1.16 tells us that these rulers and authorities were created by Christ and for Christ, then what went wrong? Why are these powers so threatening? Why can they enslave us? 
Well, the story of the Bible um, is a story of God making all things, as we said, for Christ, in Christ. Um, that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, one God, three persons, made all things good and made us, humans, um, very good at the pinnacle of, of his creation. Um, and what went wrong is that humans gave up their responsibility for God's world. The responsibility that he gave us to take dominion and to multiply, we gave up that responsibility. And we handed the power over to the powers. Tom Wright, who's a pastor, wrote this. He said, when humans refuse to use God's gifts of sexuality responsibly, they are handing over their power to Aphrodite, and she will take control. When humans refuse to use God's gift of money responsibly, they are handing over their power to mammon, and he will take control, and so on. And when the powers take over, human beings get crushed. And conversely, you see that when a human being is getting crushed, it's usually because there are powers at work that humans are powerless to stop. And in verse 8, Paul's saying that these powers, he calls them elemental spirits here, these powers are behind the scenes of human traditions. And human traditions are what create philosophies and empty deceit. Or to play it back the other way, the if-thens of our lives, right? The things that if I do this, then um, I will uh, be free from my brokenness and from my limitation. The if-thens, these are the philosophies and empty deceits. And they are culturally embedded, right? The if-thens of being Americans are different than the if-thens of being um, uh, Brazilian or the if-thens of being 15th century Chinese, right? They're, They're culturally embedded. They're human tradition. And they're directed by gods, by these elemental spirits. Um, did did you all see the RUF Instagram yesterday? Do you guys follow? Okay, I don't. I'm, I'm not that funny. It's not me. Someone else does it. Um, so the the Instagram was a skeleton puppet dancing. If you guys saw this, and it was a little marionette of a skeleton. And now imagine you were a child and you saw a marionette. You know what a marionette? A puppet dancing on the street, and it was doing great dance moves. And so you saw it, um, but you couldn't see the strings. As a child, you would think. You know, how is that puppet dancing? It must have life of its own somehow. Somehow it's being directed if you couldn't see the strings or you didn't see the puppeteer. And this is what our experience of idolatry is like. We live in a world of if-then statements, and we don't have eyes to see the puppets behind the idols or behind the statements. that These are actually puppeted by idols. And so when we get sucked into these if-then statements and we let them run our lives, um, we're worshiping idols and we don't even know it. Because idols are these things other than God that we worship because they promise freedom from the limitations and brokenness of my life, but they never deliver on their promises. And we worship idols by submitting then to their if-then statements. And so Paul is telling the church at Colossae in us, see to it that no one takes you captive by their if-then statements. And then he tells us why we should not be captive. Um, This is the next section. He says it's because you have been filled in Christ. Paul says the reason we're not to worship idols is because of what God has done for us in Christ. He gives us two reasons here. The first, he says, is because you're filled in Christ, and the second is because of the circumcision of Christ. So first, you're filled in Christ. This is verses 9 and 10. Um, He says that the fullness of God is in Christ, and in Christ we are filled. That Christ is the head, the authority of all authority. And he's saying we have no need to submit to any other master because Jesus is fully God. He's the place where we're filled up. And he is the authority over every other authority. And his people need no one but him. 
He says, don't be taken captive by idols because you've been filled in Christ. In a way, you've, you've been taken captive by Christ and that he is the authority above every idol. And then he talks about circumcision, which makes everyone uncomfortable. Um, circumcision is a sign of the old covenant. It was given to male children to show that they belong to God's people and they were marked to receive God's promises. And what Paul is saying is that when you are in Christ, when you have faith in Jesus, you're circumcised with the circumcision of Christ. And the circumcision of Christ is the cross because that's where Christ was cut off for us. Paul is saying that through faith, we are buried with Christ and through faith, we are raised with Christ to new life. Through faith, his death on the cross is our death to sin. And his resurrection from the dead is our resurrection to new life. And this is what the Spirit does through our faith. He unites us to Jesus in his death and resurrection. And Paul is saying that baptism points to that. So when you're baptized, you're saying that you want that, Jesus' death and resurrection, to be the truest thing about you. And when we baptize infants, we're saying that we want this reality, Jesus' death and resurrection, and the promises that it contains for new life to define this child and to bring them into God's family. One way of thinking about it is that just as the doorway to a building tells you what sort of building it is, right? The doorway to your dorm is different than the, bil- the doorway to Waite Chapel. They, de- they tell you what time of, type of building you're walking into. Um, so baptism, which is the doorway into the Christian life, demonstrates to us that being a Christian means dying with Christ to the old ways of life and coming alive with him in the new family of God, in this new lifestyle. And so Paul is saying that because you're united to Christ through faith, because you've been buried with him and you've been raised with him, because you've been filled in him and he is the ahead, the, the authority over all rulers and authorities, because of all of this, see to it that no one takes you captive by these idolatrous if-then statements. So how do we do it? How do we not be taken captive? How, are we not, how do we avoid captivity? Well, we do this by seeing the way that idols operate in our lives. Um, I've defined it already. I'm going to say it one more time. That idols are things other than God that we worship because they promise freedom from our limitations. The limitations we experience just by being human. And they promise freedom from the brokenness that we experience um, because of sin. But they never deliver on their promises. Right? And we've seen as Paul's structure in verse 8 that um, these if-then statements are culturally embedded and they're directed by gods. That their philosophies according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits. So what are the if-then statements in y'all's lives that you see are trying to take you captive? So as I thought about this, I thought of ones that I struggle with, um, that I have struggled with and continue to struggle with, um, and ones that I see y'all struggling with too. Um, So the first one is the if-then statement of the crafted image. If I have the perfect image, then I will be free from the limitations and the brokenness of my life. Right? There's different ways that we do this. If I have the right clothing and accessories, right? either for some of us it's the right brands, for other of us it's cutting-edge style, and for some of us it's I don't care. Um, I'm not going to let that thing define me. Um, but it's if I am perfecting this image, then I'll be free. Um, for some of us, it's our bodies. Um, if I'm skinny enough, if I look strong enough, and this is the philosophy. This is the lie. Um, and then the human tradition that's under this is that as humans who live in the 21st century secular West, 
we've been thoroughly indoctrinated to believe that your identity is something that you create rather than something you receive. That's the human tradition that we're playing into with this. Another one of these if-then statements, um, one of these idolatries that we fall into, is financial security. It goes like this. If I have enough money, then I'll be free from my limitations and the brokenness of my life. If I'm rich, then I'll be shielded from my brokenness and from the brokenness of this world. If I'm rich, then I can buy the things that take away my feelings of brokenness. Or I can pay people to do things that take away my limitations. All right, this is something that we all feel. If I just had a little bit more, a little bit more money, then, then I would be free from the experience of my own life. Okay, what is the human tradition under this? Um, what is the culture that we're a part of? Well, as humans who live in the 21st century global economy where the world is flat, we're promised from a young age that to be a human is to be a consumer. Or to borrow from Descartes, I buy, therefore I am. So we're indoctrinated to believe that if we have enough money, then we'll be free from the brokenness and the limitations of our lives. But it's not true. Right? On a macro level, our secure financial system rests on the firm foundation of an $18 trillion debt. I have no idea how much money that is, but it's more than we think it is. And personally, um, personally, for those of you who have tasted wealth, or those of you who have seen family members who worship the idol of wealth, you know how empty and how destructive that idol is. So how do we obey the command to avoid captivity to these idols? Well, there's a couple of different ways we could go about this. We could look at the ways that we're doing this if-then thing with our happiness, with our image, with our wealth, and then we could tell ourselves and one another to stop it. You know, or we could trade it out for another if-then, you know, like we're talking at the beginning, trading out happiness with ambivalence. Um, I remember watching the Iron Man a few years ago. You know, it shows, I don't remember when it is, sometime, Memorial Day, every year, and it's all over the ESPNs, and they tell these stories of people who are running. And there was a man um, who was running the, the Iron Man, which is, you know, a, a marathon run, a 100-mile bike ride, and a really long swim. And um, he was talking about how he was addicted to heroin, um, and he traded that in for addiction to Iron Man triathlons. Right? He's, he, all he's doing is trading one if-then for another. He's still enslaved. He's just enslaved to something that's a little bit more culturally um, appropriate, a little more something that we say, oh, that's okay. It's not heroin. Right? But, but that wouldn't do anything to interrupt the human traditions. If we just traded one for another or we said stop it, it would take care of the if-then statements, but it would do nothing to interrupt the human traditions. So we could aim at the happiness industry or the fashion industry, or we could try to take down capitalism. But then that wouldn't do anything to take down the gods that are at work behind the scenes. And so really there's nothing, and there is nothing that we can do to take down the powers, the spirits, the gods that are at work behind the scenes. Because as humans, we don't have that kind of access to the spiritual world. So if there's nothing that we can do to be free from the enslavement of the if-then statements of idolatry, what are we going to do? Well, look at verses 13 through 15. Paul tells us to behold the cross. He shows us the cross, 
And specifically, he shows us that on the cross, God cancels our record of debt and he disarms the rulers and authorities. So first, he cancels our record of debt. This is verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This record of debt he's referring to as the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments is a record of debt because it's like a mirror, right? When we hold it up to ourselves and we see ourselves in it, we see how how far short we fall from God's holy standard. And the record of debt, the word that Paul uses here is this Greek word, chirographon, which just means IOU. Um, It's just an IOU signed by a debtor. So Paul is referring to the entirety of the Mosaic law, the entirety of the law given by God to his people to tell them who he is and who they are as a mere IOU. Meaning, in comparison to what God has done for you on the cross in Christ, the Ten Commandments are like a post-it note. Not only did he cancel the IOU, he took it away and he nailed it to the cross. Because on the cross, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, God cancels our record of debt in Christ. And on the cross, God disarms the powers and authorities. Look at verse 15. It says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. This phrase, triumphing over them, was an allusion to the practice of of Roman generals following a conquest. In the Roman Empire, the most spectacular way of announcing a far-off victory to people at home was to march and triumph through the city, showing off the treasures taken from captured peoples and leading a host of prisoners through the streets as a public spectacle. And here's the great irony of the cross. The immediate rulers and authorities... um, that Christ disarmed were those of Rome and Israel. Rome was the best government, and Israel was the highest religion in the world at that time that the world had ever known. And Rome and Israel together conspired to put Jesus on the cross. These powers, angry at his challenge to their sovereignty, stripped him naked, held him up to public shame, and celebrated triumph over him. Do you see this? The cross reveals the power of the rulers and authorities. They had the power to crucify God. Jesus' crucifixion was counted as a victory to the rulers and authorities. Here is the Christ, fully God and fully man, the second person of the Trinity, stripped naked, shamed publicly, and rejoiced over because of his brutal execution. And then nailed to the cross above Jesus' head was this sign that Pilate wrote out that said, The king of the Jews, this charge by Rome of treason, for Caesar alone was king, and this charge of Israel for blasphemy, because God alone is king, saying to the world that this is what we do to traitors, and this is what we do to blasphemers. But the cross was not, in fact, the defeat of God. Because on the cross, God stripped Rome and Israel naked. He held them up to contempt and led them in his triumphal procession in Christ. Because when the rulers and authorities had done their worst, crucifying the Lord of glory on the charge of blasphemy and treason, they had overreached themselves because Jesus was neither a blasphemer nor a traitor. He was, in fact, their rightful king. 
and is the rightful king over all rulers and authorities. The cross reveals the power of the, rules, rule, of the rulers and authorities, and it reveals the supreme power of God, that on the cross he disarmed and he shamed and he triumphed over them in Christ. And because in Jesus' defeat he actually has the greatest victory, the cross becomes the source for hope for all who have been held captive under the seductive power of idols. So how then do I get free from my idols? How do I get free from those if-then statements that run my life, that promise freedom and never deliver? Well, take them to the cross. Take your if-then statements to Jesus on the cross and see how God has disarmed them, how he has put them to an open shame, and how he has triumphed over them in Jesus. And put your faith in the powerful working of God who has raised Jesus from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that on the cross of your Son, you have done this great work of triumphing over and shaming and disarming the rulers and authorities of this world. Father, we confess that um, our lives are often ruled by these if-then statements, hoping that this one more thing might give us the satisfaction, the freedom that we long for. Um, but, Lord, we know that that's not true, that the hope and the freedom um, and the life that we long for is found in Jesus. Lord, would you help us now to take uh, these things and to bring them to him, that they might be triumphed over in him and we might um, have victory in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.